Welcome to another episode of the On The Way podcast, a podcast uh, discussing a non-dualistic, compassionate view of faith and the search for meaning. My name is Dom Fay. I'm joined by our two uh, regulars, Peter Cat and Sue Wilton. Thanks for your time, guys. Thanks, Dom. Dom. And uh, a special guest today, uh, the first bishop we've had on the On The Way podcast, the right (laughs) Reverend Professor Stephen Pickard uh, joins us. Thanks for for your time, Stephen. I feel really special now. (laughs) (laughs) It's a prestigious honour. Now, not only are you an Anglican bishop, you are also the executive director of the Australian Centre for Christianity and Culture, which we uh, may get to at some stage throughout the conversation. But essentially, today's conversation, we... We wanted to ground in uh, the incompatibility, I suppose, with the fast-paced nature of culture and of the world today with, um, I guess, the spiritual quest, the search for meaning that all humans are to some extent on and how those two things don't work well together and the, I guess the need to, to slow down to ask these questions and delve into these mysteries. Um, Starting with, I guess, that idea of the problem, Stephen, when you look at culture, when you look at the world today, why do you feel it is incompatible, or, or not incompatible, but certainly something of a stumbling block to delving deeper into the mysteries of, of life and meaning? Oh, well, um, I'll take my cue from uh, Michael Lernick's uh, wonderful poem called Another Way of Being, Another Way of Knowing, and in it he's got this line that says, nothing can be loved at speed. And I thought, well, when I first heard this, I thought, this is, this is absolutely right. But we've got a culture which is hell-bent on rushing in all sorts of directions, quite confused. Uh, it looks for fix, quick-fix solutions. Um, it, it generates leaders that offer messianic kind of heroic um, uh, possibilities for dealing with a fast-paced world. And people get burnt out all the time. They, they, they don't have any time to attend to the things that really matter, and they're rushing from one thing to the next. It's part of the world in which we live and move and have our being in this. We breathe it. We're infected by it. And Lunig's, Lunig's line, nothing can be loved at speed, I thought, that rings a bell with me. If you actually want to learn the art of life together and meaningful life together, you need to attend. You need to take time. Good things take time to grow. And when he said nothing can be loved at speed, he's absolutely right. And I found that right in my own life. Uh, because my wife always complains about I'm trying to squeeze the last second out of every day. Mm. But it takes you, it takes a lot more um, energy to just slow things down a little bit as a human being. I guess that that concept of the fast lane is quite a helpful one because there does seem to be this, uh, anecdotally, um, restlessness in... Uh, in certainly in young people, but I think in, in culture in 2018 that you have to do more, be more, achieve more, maybe travel more, see more. It's always about more, mm. increase the speed, put the accelerator down faster, you know, in, instead of exiting off the freeway, I guess, and maybe taking the back streets for a bit. Why do you think um, culture has moved to, towards that? It's been happening, it's been going at a pace like this for the last 150 years. This is not something that's just happened. But technology has given us the capacity to, uh, and social media has ramped up those possibilities, made it even faster. We, we live in a highly competitive world. There are winners and losers, you know, survivors and not survivors. Um, and it's part of that, uh, who are we first of all? We're producers, we're uh, consumers. And that generates a lot of anxiety. So, I mean, it's a large cultural phenomenon of the West and it generates a lot of anxiety. I think it's a product of Western economics, the the West, the idea of being the most efficient, most productive, um, profit, 
the idea of profit, I think, is one of the things that's made us uh, more interested in speed because it's about getting more rather than being more. And so mm. we've developed an acquisitive culture. Um, and we, as Stephen said, we're into competing with each other. And there's no sense of communal activity in that. So it's not about not developing um, a life for people, but it's about producing more, earning more, uh, maximising profit to shareholders, all of that sort of stuff has now become, uh, has invaded the rest of our life as well. So we, you know, we've seen kids that these days aren't, don't have time to play because they have to achieve music and tutoring and three sports and be a member of the cathedral choir. It's one of the things we face here is, you know, in the good old days, a kid was a chorister and that... People understood that that took real time. Now there's this sort of hope that the kid will be a virtuoso on the violin, sing in the choir, fit in a couple of rugby games and do rowing in the morning while they're doing choir practice. It's just become this... And it, I think it's the economic model has just invaded everything. Mm. And I think what that does is sell us on the idea, I and mean, the, the restlessness is part of the human condition, but the, that sells us on the idea that if only if we can acquire these things, if we can... Um, whether that be products, whether that be profit, whether that be um, three languages, you know, if we can only acquire those things and maybe that might quieten the voices of the restlessness that, mm. is, that is within. And that restlessness, you know, you know we, can, we can point to a number of sources, a, a loss of connection um, with God, with yourself, with, with one another, with all of creation is, is one of those hearts of restlessness for me. But, you know, I, I think... You, you actually have to see what the restlessness is teaching you. You have to stay with the restlessness for long enough to hear what it might be saying and not be sold by the voices of culture that it says, if only you had these things, then, then you'd get there. I guess it is that, that uh, concept of the sacred object of I'll be whole, I'll be complete when I get that thing, whether that thing is the dream job or when I've travelled extensively or, or whatever it is, that there is more and I must have it. And of course, the, the, the issue is that many people, myself included to an extent in my journey, seem to find that when they get the thing they thought would make them whole, they feel just as incomplete as they did before. And I suppose that, that becomes an invitation either to, to delve into what is this quest and why has this one not satisfied me? Or it can be an invitation into thinking, well, I'll continue the quest and search for the other thing that will fulfill me. Well, part of, part of that surely has got, well, I think it's got to do with what's worth finding. You know, uh, one of the reasons why we experience this lack, even though we're consumers, I consume, therefore I am, and I've got to have more and more, and I'm a, this acquisitive kind of being that I am. But if you're acquiring things, which I would you know, take the food analogy, if you just eat sugar, fairy floss, or carbs, you, and don't eat protein, then very quickly you need something more. So we're in a fast food, sugar, sugar culture, carb culture. What, what actually gives protein in our life is the slow release that we... So what's worth finding and spending a lot of time trying to uh, get to know? I think that's one of the issues. Mm. We've, we've lost our way in the sense of we got everything out of balance. Um, so these days I'm thinking, righto, what's, what's good protein? What's good spiritual protein? What's good protein for relationships you know do you have uh, the same experience in a relationship 20 times over <laughs> uh, so we're consumers of relationships 
Or how do we give ourselves time to, to get to know others properly so that they really mean something to us? I think that's a fascinating concept, consumers of relationship. Can you just speak a bit more on that? Well, uh, this consumer mentality does flow into every part of our life. And uh, we, we hear a lot about relationships these days. We're all into relationship, you know. We're, we're relationship junkies. Um, and look, in social media, how many friends can you get? You know, some people say, oh, I've got... Well, we know that they're not real friends, but they've got this quantification approach to relationships, friends and what have you. But when you think about it, I could count on a couple, one hand, the, the friends that I would go to when I really needed some help or somebody I could really share something with. So the truth of the matter is uh, those kind of friends take a long time to cultivate and that requires to slow the system down, not to consume everybody because then everybody else becomes an object rather than a real person. And they have needs and I'm just kind of become sucking energy from people rather than kind of having a mutual relationship. But that takes time. I think one, one way that we do become consumers of relationship, when you, Stephen, you're referring to, to they become an object. Mm. You know, I think that happens when people have a perception of a perfect relationship or, or the perfect person that they want to be in relationship with and they will go about, set about projecting that onto someone else. And until they, they gradually, and they don't, they kind of screen out the things that are inconsistent with that image that they projected on. And the problem with that, of course, is that they miss the opportunity to actually see the real mystery or, or who that person could be to them. That because they, they, they're so busy trying to make them fit into a certain mould or their expectation of, of who they want them to be, that there's actually a vast amount of the unknown in the other person that mm. could be a, to a wonderful gift. But that doesn't fit into that kind of, and I think it does relate to the consumer mentality of that's the kind of product I want. Do you know, it, it triggered off in me a thought. Last uh, weekend, I was officiating at a, at a wedding of a young couple, a lovely, lovely young couple. And uh, in the context of that, we were talking about the fact that the worst thing you can try to do in a relationship is consume the other by controlling, you know, manipulating, owning and there is a deep mystery about human beings. And when you stop honouring that mystery and the unreachableness of another person, uh, then the thing starts to really uh, become problematic and you, you lose relationships. So there's, some, there's something, but that takes time mm. and investment and it requires a mutuality. I, I suppose the, the dilemma of social media, and, and not that this is a different age, but what it has... Uh, perhaps exaggerated is the sense that uh, hundreds of other lives are now on full display or idealized lives. They're not reality, but, but you scroll through an Instagram feed if you're at home alone on a Saturday night <laughs> and you see one friend traveling through France and you see another friend celebrating a two-year anniversary and you see another friend out at a party or a music festival. And if you're at home alone on a Saturday night, you can't help but play the comparative game that, that my life is not enough, not good enough. I'm missing out. Look at all these lives I could be having that I'm that I'm not. And that leads to a deep... I, I think that fuels the restlessness. I, I couldn't agree more. I, um, it's true. I mean, it does fuel an anxious restlessness. It's not just restless, but mm. anxious um, that you are missing out. There's no quick solutions to these. I mean, these are cultural um, features of our culture right now. So how do you, how do you slow the system down... You can't do it by yourself. 
Mm. You need you need compatriots. You need companions who will join that quest. I think that's where the spiritual hungers um, have to be uh, fueled by protein rather than sugar and spice and yeah. carb. You know, you, we need uh, we need the proteins for our life in our psychological, our emotional, our vocational, our work, and our spiritual lives. And uh, we can't do it together. We uh, we can't do it without others. We need we need others to join with us. So there has been, um, I think, in response to that, there's been the whole slow food movement, which was about it actually takes time to cook a meal and sit down with people, and goodness me, take three hours to eat it. Peter, um, I've seen you. You take a long time, and you're a great cook. I love cooking. I'm part of, <laughs> slow food was my first discovery of slow. Is that right? I, I now do slow holidays. The people, the people who organise our holidays are actually called the slow holiday people, and because it's all about walking, and you can only. So, how much of the world have I seen? You know, maybe 160 kilometres in total. But boy, have I seen it. I've seen the ants crawling on the ground and I've seen flowers and dragonflies dancing. And But that's all I've seen. I've only seen that much. And in terms of the tick box thing, I'm never going to get there because, you know. But slow holidays, slow food, and I guess this is where we're heading today is uh, slow church. Yeah, well, I, I suppose how uh, slowing down is essential to, to delving into that meaning, uh, that, that quest for meaning. It is interesting, though, because I guess um, I'm just thinking of, of my own experience that uh, how many young people wonder if they're in the right church or, you know, if they're not a church person, am I in the right friendship group, am I in the right degree? Again, that that what's more out there, what more can I attain? only then to find when they get there that it doesn't fulfill as well. So I suppose that might be a that might be an interesting place to start is that idea that that sooner or later in life it does seem to be from again anecdotal experience that that quest that restless quest ultimately gets exhausting and ultimately people realize this isn't fulfilling me. I need something else and that is again the invitation to jump out off the highway and and slow down and look elsewhere or to continue on the highway and try to find something else to fill that hole what what's the first step in perhaps standing in a different stream is, is the language peter uses what's that first step to to uh, being countercultural to that that more faster um culture and, and, and slowing down awareness is always the first step so, and then self-awareness i think being aware that i being aware of what's actually happening so that process we've just been through of describing the problem or describing what the world looks like and then saying asking the question well does it have to be that way and how could we do it differently is the first step because as soon as you declare i'm anxious because i'm doing all these things it it actually begins to uh dissipate the anxiety because you actually made a statement and i think that's the first step and i guess the the fact that there are people who are doing slow food who who aren't who aren't you know aren't even seeking to com- uh, compete with McDonald's. McDonald's can keep doing McDonald's things, but there are people who are carving out unused space to uh, take food seriously and deliberatively, and to then spend time sharing it together. So there's that sort of by recognizing the issue then that's the first step to overcoming and living the different life and say so you actually can make a choice and 
you, know, you, you do have a choice between going to McDonald's or paying the extra and going to a beautiful eight-course degustation <laughs> menu that is going to blow your mind and your taste buds and stay with you for a long time. Yeah, I, I think there, there's some really interesting analogies with food, but there's there's a sense with slow food of taking taking a lot more responsibility. You're not outsourcing. You're, you're you're taking a lot of responsibility for your own food and your and and what's going in and the slow time in preparing. And I think when we're talking about first steps, one of the first steps is to take responsibility. That freedom of choice, which actually Peter that came up too, that that sense of of freedom there that you have the responsibility and the freedom not to outsource it to other people, whether that be culture, whether that be other people's opinions, whether that be you know, the, the, the voice in, from, from your childhood that's in your head telling you you're doing it the wrong way, whoever that may be. You know, and taking, having that utter freedom to, to not outsource your life but recognise the wisdom that you have within yourself. And for me, you know, that's, that's the, the, the wisdom of Christ within that is within all of us and the, that sense of being able to tap into by listening to your life, listening to your symptoms in your life, what, you know, what does that restlessness mean? What does that? What am? What's going on for me right now, that uh, I'm not, um, I'm missing life. You know, what's going on for me that that person that used to be creative, or that person that used to laugh a lot, or that person that used to find the time to reflect and to really be present with other people isn't there. So I think the part of the awareness is noticing your own patterns too so that mm. then that life wisdom that is within um, can, can come forward. Um, my own experience and what I've observed about this, what's the first step is sometimes you end up in a hole in your life. Sometimes really difficult things overwhelm you and you can't solve the problem. Uh, sometimes you feel completely bereft of friends. Life's experiences can really be the prompt and so that you don't kind of sit in a chair sort of chewing over these things philosophically and think, well, you know, I'm not really happy with life as it's going. Things sometimes happen in some horrendous ways for people mm. and uh, they, they struggle with addictions and compulsions and all sorts of things they're done to or things that have disappointed them deeply and hurt them. And those things can be the trigger for the awareness and think, well, and it's at precisely those times you hope and pray that there is somebody else that's a companion to listen to that to help you kind of begin the quest. That's why it's very hard to do this as the lone individual. Mm. We actually are made for each other and, um, and those times of crisis and those times of real pain and suffering we crave the the uh, the friendship of another or the companionship or the listening ear and that can be the trigger for that uh, recognition and awareness and then you begin a search and uh, the spiritual heart is so hungry that it's, it can exist on crumbs at times until it gets a good feed <laughs> uh, I, I guess there is that idea that the um the old system has to stop working before you can look for a new one. Um, and, and that is often painful. That is often gutting. And um, that pit can, people can get stuck in that pit. People can struggle to make it through that pit. I know a, a teacher of mine at high school loved to use the analogy from the matrix of the blue pill and the red pill. That whenever you have those pits, you're, you're confronted with the idea of you can jump straight back into the system and try again. Or you can try to stand in observation of the system and, and live differently. Um, 
and I suppose that is where we will delve into now is this idea that of how this uh, slowing down approach can inform a spiritual life, can in, inform a search for meaning. This idea that that you are enough, that that this is enough, um, how that can actually radically counterculturally change the way um, that you live. And I might just start here, Stephen, because you do a quote of yours about the search for meaning in the West. You say that in the secular West, the sacred has not been lost or abandoned uh, so much as migrated, um, is a quote of yours. The idea that it's been relocated, that it's still there in people, that they haven't deemed the search for meaning an irrelevant thing. It might be layers beneath distraction and noise, but it's still there, but it's just been migrated. What do you think it's been migrated to? Oh, any one of a number of things. Um, there's something just part of our DNA, our, our createdness. It's it's kind of captured in uh, that ancient prayer of St. Augustine's about our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. And if not God, then they'll find a rest somewhere, but it won't satisfy. And uh, it's that spiritual hunger will come out somewhere. Now, Where's it going to come? Uh, where will it go? Uh, for some people, they, they find it in abusive kind of locations where it doesn't make any sense. Um, they think that that's where they might get some relief. There was a tradition back when I was young about the whole the whole movement of uh, drugs at one stage was the, the psychedelic experiences, which had a quasi kind of spiritual feel about them. But ultimately... They can't deliver the goods. So where is it migrated? It's migrated into a lot of different places in people's lives. It can migrate and become um, some, some, uh, a, mis, a misshapen form of the true sacred in, a, in just about anything that you want to invest it in. It's when uh, people start to think that even those supposedly sacred spaces um, don't actually satisfy, that it then causes us to go on a, a, deeper, a deeper journey. And uh, it's a question of, again, what, is, what offers some lasting nourishment for the spiritual quest? Um, and again, I come back to it. You can't do that by, by yourself. You just can't do it. And so when, when the sacred migrates into places that take you into just by yourself, it's, it's not going to satisfy you because we're made for one another. And I think also when it migrates into something that's too simple, you know, I think we, it's so, we, we, partly because of the, the pace of our culture, even with, with church and with spirituality, we're trying to find that package that we can deliver to people mm. that will bring them into the sacred. And part of that's from a nice motivation, a good motivation, you know, there's a sense of wanting to, to help or assist. But the fact we, we're actually in trying to simplify Christianity or in trying mm. to create that sort of thing that we can just hand on. We, we rob it of its power because in some ways, in some ways it's, it's more appropriate to say we need to make it more difficult. We need to actually mm, help agree. people to recognise that this is an incredibly slow and difficult mm. um, journey that we're on and that you need to take responsibility for yourself, yep. but yes, in the company of others. I picked up a book once that was called The Search for God and the Company of Friends. Now, the book wasn't that great, but <laughs> the, um, the, I loved the title. The title was great. The title was great. Well, it's interesting. I know that what you just touched on there was a big theme of Kierkegaard's life. I know you've been reading a lot of recently. So the desire to not make things simpler, but actually open them up, make them more complex. Mm. Mm. Um, and I think, I think that's a big part of it. I, I know that in the mystical tradition as well of the, the Christian faith, there is this grounding in the knowledge of, or in the sense of not knowing, um, of, mm. of actually, mm. it's not a quest 
for knowledge. In fact, yeah. and it's not a quest of having it all together. Yep. I know, Sue, as well, you've spoken before on the podcast about how some Christian bookshops might offer a pamphlet, which is what the Bible says about grief. And it's 10 dot points about what broken down what the Bible says about grief, and that's meant to help you and inform you, and you've got it now, and off you go again. Um, and this idea of, I, I guess, would you say that is, that is, if we're talking about fast food, that that is fast religion, that is fast meaning? Fast religion is, is one of our biggest problems, I think. We, we had this idea 20 years ago that we need to set up things called seekers services to make religion accessible to someone who walked in off the street. I think what we really needed to do was to make sure there were people who could companion people as they entered into the mysteries. And so for me, you know, if, if someone comes into church and says, I didn't understand that today, I think we're probably on the right track because I don't understand it either. And I don't want to understand it because it's a mystery that keeps drawing me deeper and deeper. But what we want to avoid is the person who comes in off the street, ends up so confused and alone, to pick up Stephen's point, that this idea that they somehow had to come to an understanding of it for themselves because they're an individual who's come to this thing to consume whatever it is this shop offers. I think what, what the, the answer is to have people who are there to make them welcome. So then they can say to that welcoming person, what was that guy or woman up there doing with that sort of large bit of, look, was it bread? It looked like an ice cream wafer to me. Um, what, were, you know, what were they doing and, and why did we all go down there and, you know, and what was that smoke? To, to actually invite people into the exploration of the mysteries rather than um, making it all digestible. It's why I really loathe all of those sort of packaged versions of Christianity. You know, ten, 10 weeks to Christianity Explained, you know, my view is let's have 42 years of Christianity unexplained and, <laughs> and really get into this, you know. This is a journey. This is slow everything. Yeah. But it, it is, as Stephen said, it's about making sure that people f don't feel that they have to do it by themselves because you can't do it by yourself. The whole reason we meet for worship is that we can't do it by ourselves. And all those other religious practices we have of going off on retreat by ourselves, uh, time apart, all grow out of the corporate experience. What strikes me from what you're saying, Peter, is... It might be that the, uh, the search for the satisfaction of our spiritual hungers, which is found together with others, and in this case, in the life of worship, um, might be also a way to open our eyes to the true sacredness of a whole lot of things in the world, beyond the false sacred. Um, for example, today uh, we're increasingly aware that we belong to a planet which is in danger. And... Uh, particularly with the younger generation, I, I get a sense of a heightened awareness of the importance of this and that the land is sacred. It has a particular kind of sacredness. And I think there's a relationship between the recognition of that sacredness, which I don't think is a migration of the sacred, by the way. I think it's actually a recognition that this too belongs in the sacredness of God, that it's connected with what might happen when you open yourself up with others in the company of others to worship God. These things, they join, they're joined up. Whereas there are other kind of, uh, and I'm just really saying, I've thought of a few things about the migration of the sacred. Sport in Australia, it's a sacred kind of thing. Why would you have such brouhaha about ball tampering if you hadn't 
if you hadn't been disobedient to some of the fundamental sacred rules of this sacred game. And in being a demagogue. Yeah, uh, yeah, the high Mm. priests of cricket have done something which has broken (laughs) broken the sacred rules and it has to be, uh, they have to be sacrificed. And then the system closes over. Why? For corporate corporate Australia. But it becomes a quasi-false sacred. Um, Mm. You get it in other forms of the migration of the sacred into civic religion. And I remember that... uh, uh, wonderful young uh, ABC or oh, SBS reporter who uh, she made some comments on Anzac Day, mm. um, you know, last year for which she was pilloried about well yeah lest we forget and she she mentioned well lest we forget a whole range of other painful suffering people in this this planet that is connected to Australia's lest we forget um, here was some. There, there was an outrage there about somebody that had uh, broken a serious sacred rule. But it, it kind of falsified the real sacredness of people's lives. So there are migrations of the sacred which are genuinely false and empty, and then there are other forms of sacredness that we begin to really appreciate. I don't know. It's a little bit more complicated. And, and I'm a complexifier, which is my first problem. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there's a really big point in both those comments about where the, where the sacred and, and this sense of um, and what you're talking about, Stephen, is, is really a, a recognition of of the scope of the sacred that we can't. Sure. The, the church is not sitting there being the owners of the sacred. No. And sometimes, you know, when we're talking about drawing people into the mystery in our worship services, that and the drawing is a beautiful beautiful word to use because it's about movement. Start is about about motion and movement, and God is always about mystery and motion. So you're drawing people in, and yet this is not the epicenter. Instead of, and I'm thinking thinking it could be Paul Tillich here. He said instead of this, it, we us thinking about our sacraments and the, our symbols, the things that draw people into mystery, as starting here and then going out to the world. Instead, it's the reverse. It's actually understanding the world, as Annie Dillard said, the whole world is one great sacramental loaf. And drawing from that in from the world into us, so that the whole that recognizing the sacred there, and then we kind of draw people in, and people continue this this movement of of searching and discovery together with others deeper into the mystery here when we come to worship. If we're, I guess, talking about this this countercultural way of of slowing down, of uh, I guess uh, not not buying into the messaging. You know, that's on every billboard, in every ad, in every conversation that you can do more, be more, see more, whatever that is. Um, And and we're starting with that first step being awareness of that being the culture and and standing in a different stream. I suppose we are uh, are confronted with the, the life of Jesus who is... You know, obviously, the the, the pivotal uh, human figure in this this Christian uh, tradition, and you make the interesting observation, Stephen, that Jesus walked in his ministry. That, you know, Jesus didn't have a jet that took him around the place. Jesus didn't have a Jesus mobile. Um, that Je- Jesus walked, and that actually his ministry was a, a, a slow ministry. Yeah, I could just imagine him. Uh, you know, he's got his friends with him. We call them the disciples, and he says, "They say, what are we going to do today?" He said, "Well, we're going to go down to Galilee. There's a lake down there, and I just there's a few fish that I want to catch." And oh, well, what's our purpose and what's our program today? He said, "Well, we're going to have a talk about it." <laughs> <laughs> and they're scratching their heads, thinking, "Well, we've got to move on. We've got things to do for the kingdom." And he says, "Yes, that's right. We've got to go and go fishing." <laughs> and and 
and, and then sit on a hill and uh, oh, then I want to go to a well because I think there's going to be a meeting down there with somebody, you know, and maybe you might write about it one day, guys. <laughs> so there was this sense that um, he, he, had, he occupied what I call a slow frame of mind, a, a, slow, a, slow, a mindset which slowed things down so that things could happen. And unless you slow things down enough so things can happen, you'll miss them, which is why Lunik's thing about you cannot love anything at speed. And so, you know, just imagine they've had their day down, down by the lake and uh, walking back to their village. And imagine the conversations that have taken place that started at dawn and will finish at dusk. And the kind of things that would have transpired between them and the bonds that would have grown, the friendships and the insights and wisdom that would have come sort of not through a program, but bit by bit it would seep out like um, leaking into, into the life together. And the Gospels are full of the incidents and the events of people meeting Jesus on the road, on the way, on boundaries between the right and the wrong, the good and the bad, the in and the out. I think of the Sumerian woman, um, but there's many others. The healings that take place in people's houses, having a meal, for heaven's sake, not rushing to get the next flight out. <laughs> so the, God, that's the, the Gospels are of a Jesus which had a slow mindset, and the amazing thing about his mindset being a slow mindset, he got a lot done. And that's the that's the that's the that's the amazing thing about a slow frame of mind. Doesn't mean you actually go purposely, deliberately slow, so you just go to fall asleep. It means that you have a way of a pace, finding the right pace in your life. And Jesus is a good exemplar of somebody who found a good pace in his life. And he, even in Mark's gospel, I say to people, how many days, how many months, how many years do you think it might have taken? for Jesus to do everything that happened in Mark's gospel. And uh, the answer actually is about 16 weeks, even though most people say, oh, at least three years. <laughs> if you actually look at the things that happened in Mark's gospel, uh, it's about 16, 17 weeks, he could have got it all done. And one of the favorite words in Mark's gospel is immediately, immediately, immediately. And you think, gosh, he's a purpose-driven life of ever, I said. <laughs> and I thought, this is very antithetical to slow, Jesus, you know. Mm. But then you start to read the bits in between. In the morning, he's up on a mountain at prayer. And he has to walk up the mountain. Then he has to walk back down again and have breakfast. And then he will travel somewhere with the disciples, but walking, this peripatetic kind of ministry. So although it looks everything is urgent because the kingdom of God is urgent, the way he goes about dealing with the urgent is in a very slow mindset and deliberate, like you used that word deliberative before, Peter. So I think the, the Gospels are full of a picture of Jesus on the spiritual quest and teaching others that there's a secret about how you undertake that spiritual quest there. I heard a conversation once about how fast Jesus walked and he said well mate generally Jesus probably most people walk about 3k's an hour so probably Jesus was ambling all at about 3k's an hour and in this conversation the other person said but I walk at 5k's an hour and they went well what does that actually mean it means that you're ahead of Jesus <laughs> what are you what are you going to do you're going to sit there and wait you know the idea is about following and and I'm basically a very fast-paced person if you if if I just uh, am functioning on my default position you know and I think I can easily find myself ahead 
and maybe that's that's the, the the point when you you check and you start to notice the symptoms that are going on for yourself. But I think being aware of of pace, um, and that concept of of we can't always manage our life to the point of we know when we're getting to the next thing at which appropriate time. You know, sometimes we have to just follow at a at at, at a Jesus pace. Uh, yeah, there was a wonderful um, Japanese theologian. I don't know, forty years ago now, Kusama. Uh, he wrote a book, little book called The Three Mile an Hour God. Fantastic book. Mm. I mean, he, he saw this before we did. Yeah. <laughs> the Three Mile an Hour God. He was trying to make a point. Yeah. I love the Orthodox uh, tradition. The, uh, the first thing the priest says at the beginning of an Orthodox liturgy is, let us attend. Mm. And then he walks off. He literally walks out and says to the people, let us attend. Then he turns around and works off and the liturgy slowly unfolds. But it's that beautiful statement of intent that we are going to attend to what happens. And the Benedictine um, tradition picks it up too through their practice of what they call statio. And so when they come into the chapel to pray, the Benedictines stand still for a minute to make sure that they are arriving in the chapel, not rushing into the chapel because they've just been doing something else. So they stand there for a minute. And I was in a Benedictine community a few years ago and I noticed that even when a monk was running late, he still stopped and did the statio before taking his place Mm. because he really needed to enter into the liturgy he needed to learn to attend and then when they finish they do exactly the same thing they stand for a minute because they've got to attend to something else now so instead of just going what's next on the agenda bang 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 they develop this habit of stop breathe recognize let us attend uh, there was a pastor um, I once heard uh, <laughs> in a, in a uh, church I'm no longer a part of who gave a message about um, what a shame it was that Jesus didn't have a PA. Because if <laughs> Jesus had a PA, how much more could he have fit in? <laughs> he could have spoken at many more towns, many more functions. They could have had conferences. <laughs> it could have been a, a much more, in this culture, effective um, yeah, more productive, or productive. More productive. Um, and he, he probably wouldn't have been crucified either. <laughs> <laughs> you would have been somewhere else. <laughs> never, never got into that tomb and never got out of it. <laughs> but, yeah. but that, that's actually amazing insight because if you do, if you do crowd your schedule with busyness, you'll never go through the death and resurrection of your own life. Absolutely, that's exactly right. I mean, our life is multiple baptisms, multiple deaths, multiple resurrections being raised. Mm. I, I mean. The whole tradition, just picking up the Benedictine and the Orthodox tradition, the whole tradition in the Christi- in Christianity, and not only in the Christian tradition, but other religious traditions, of going on retreat, taking time out to attend. And for me, this whole question about slow spiritual growth and slow church started about 20 years ago when I was working with um, some students in ministry, and we would go on our annual retreat, and I said one year, Look, um, we're going to go on a retreat um, and we're going to have a couple of quiet days. That's the, that was the lingo, you know, we have quiet days. And all of a sudden I checked myself and I said, uh, but actually what we really need are slow days. And you could hear this palpable sigh of relief that, 
we're going to slow the system down. Mm. You've heard that phrase. We all use it. I like to slow the system down. So from that day, it was about 20 years ago, we started having slow days rather than quiet days. And, of course, when you go a slow day, it takes about three days to get all the static out of your head so you can hear anything Mm. useful. You You know what that's like. So going slow actually provided a way of being able to listen to yourself and to others. Um, so that was that started me off on this, this journey, um, which I think will be the first, as I've said on many other uh, contexts, the first hundred years are the most difficult. Um, <laughs> after, that it, after that, it's a dozzle, dozzle because I, I actually do go at a high adrenaline. So for me, yeah. this is a big issue. Yeah. I think that perhaps one of the, the products of fast religion, if we call it that, has been that unfortunately now this language of the words Jesus, God, whatever, obscure these truths about the human condition to a large portion of secular society. So um, the moment they'll hear the word God or church or Jesus or any of these words, there's no truth to be found there because that's in a wholly different paradigm that I just intellectually don't believe so I'm not even going to look as to what was, at, I think, at the time, most scholars say, a, a core how-to-be-human message. I guess um, there, there, there's something fascinating in the fact that when Jesus presented this how-to-be-human message, thousands flocked to hear him. It was that it was that captivating. And yet people who walk past churches on a Sunday morning now see, you know, well, not thousands in there most of the time. That it's, it's almost been deemed irrelevant by a society which is more interested in speeding up. I guess practically, how can this transform the way we can we can do this? How can this practically transform the way we live in terms of a weekly, daily life? How can this transform how we delve into our spiritual journeys, whatever they are? Uh, that's a great question, uh, Dom. We, well, I think we're all struggling with that as uh, communities within a culture which is moving in the other direction. Uh, I think it's a real challenge. I think we're at a time in our life of great transitions in our culture. They say every 500 years there's a major transformation, a reformation of some kind. We're undergoing, the last one was in the uh, late 15th century, early 16th, big uh, in, in Europe. We're now 500 years on. We're in a time of massive transition. And the best I think we can do is to start to name that to be the case. And secondly, we're in a time, what do you do in transitions? Well, you don't tread water. You don't want to go backwards, but you, I changed the metaphor. We, we need to plant new seeds. We're in the gardening metaphor. We, we need to start sowing new kinds of seeds that will grow a different kind of way of being. Mm. And we need to honour the local, the small, where people gather together in companionship and start to nurture that. So it's a radical movement from the ground up rather than waiting for uh, top-down pronouncements, programs. It has to be a radical prophetic initiative from the local level in small groups. For heaven's sake, that's how the gospel started. You know, what about that trip to Galilee with 12 people, many, some of whom, well, all of whom were going to desert him eventually. But nonetheless, he stuck with a small group. Um, so I think we're in this time of transition, um, of sowing seeds of good quality, uh, attending and relationships, and building our lives together. I, I think the small group is the secret too, because it, it, it's about um, 
it is about those relationships, and it, but it takes the focus on on people and that connection takes it onto that and away from programs or a package that we can give you. I think the um, part of what we're dealing with is is an idea of. Um, you know, it's either we're either looking back in the past, and hence the language of people say Christianity is a dead religion from two thousand years ago, because they're they're just seeing looking at that kind of um, memory idea of history, or else they're treating it as a package for the future. We say you you, know, you pray this kind of prayer and you'll be in heaven, and then then that will all be a a good thing for all of us. You know, that's the time to look forward to. You know, and we're actually we're losing the present here, and this is a very Kierkegaardian thing to actually. Um, help people understand it's about waking up. I think I always think waking up is a, is a great metaphor and there's mm. this great word, great Danish word, ubliket, which is about, and in, in, it's sort of translated as blink, but in, in our culture we think of blink as closing your eye. But in Danish it's apparently um, more about the moment when your eye opens and sight rushes in. And I think in being in helping people to uh, recognising we are in this present moment, we are recognising that we are caught in the, the the day-to-day life of a linear time, but we also have eternity. We also have this sense of eternity. The, the, the song Eternity in Our Hearts is still true, you know. I always love the, was it Arthur Stace? Was that the, the gentleman's name who, who wrote Eternity all over Sydney streets? You know, he had an intuitive sense that he that that people would connect with that as the longing of their hearts that they could recognize what was true about them as well and Kierkegaard talks about our, our that tension we hold always is between the temporal and the eternal and he says it's like you have you're in a uh, you're in a horse and cart but you've got two horses strapped in you've got one's an old nag and the other one's pegasus and you're trying to drive and if you're awake if you are actually letting that sight rush in on the present then you are trying to drive those two horses he said most of them are actually most of us are, are drunk in the back seat of the cart and letting life go on but you know how do we wake up it's a rediscovery um people like marcus borg are suggesting that it's it's, it's about the rediscovery of practice we live in a time when practice has been discounted because it is associated with um boredom often but uh he the early church had lots of practices that that helped people enter into the fullness of life because it helped them to slow down so there's the practice of prayer rather than yeah, we've, we've 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 sort of universalized all these things so people will say oh i can pray anywhere so they don't actually have a specific time to pray um, so they don't pray anywhere. So they don't pray anywhere. That's exactly right. Um, so meditation as a practice helps us to become more attentive. Um, and I think that uh, learning, again, the art of practice and what it does to ground us and to set us free is one of the, one of the gifts that the church can give. And we've certainly noticed that here is one of the growing edges of our community are the people who are drawn into various practices so the meditation group has become a portal for people to come into the community life and out of a group of people who sit around i remember sue was one day saying isn't it amazing we have this bunch of people who will come and sit in silence together drive half an hour to get there and drive half an hour to get home in order to sit together but it means they're actually developing a real sense of presence and out of that have come deep friendships and then comes the practice of actually discovering again that it's actually okay to spend time with each other. And so rediscovering, rediscovering the meal, rediscovering the art of making the meal um, 
you know, our family for the last year has been meeting on a Monday night with a, sort of a real disciplined regularity and the discipline really is the fact that everyone wants to be there. And so over a course of five hours there's this gathering in the kitchen, people helping with the making of the food, eating together, packing up together and no sense of it being a job but it just being a sheer delight. I'm reminded of, uh, of a friend of mine's dad whose wife died when um, uh, when she was quite young and he you know, he was for the first couple of years afterwards he was absolutely devastated and then he thought I need people so he started making pasta on a Tuesday night and inviting people around for dinner and it turned into this thing that went on for years and years and years and years and he ended up with this amazing friendship group and of people who helped to make him who he was to become and it was just simply a bunch of people eating homemade pasta together. Mm. There's an attentiveness to it. There. Absolute attentiveness. And I think intentionality. Intentionality is the other, is the other yeah. thing. Yes, that's right. That. Yes. It, because there's so much of our life, that's when the, the, the awakenness too, you know, mm. it, it, we can lose so much of our life in, in not living. Um, but, the, you know, if you're gathering people together and you're cooking and you're cleaning up and you're talking, in every moment of that time, you were being very intentional about what you were doing and that you were doing it together. Mm. And, and that, for me, that's, that's a waking waking mm. lifetime. Mm. Can I just insert one other bit of slowness into this and that mm. is in the in the what I would call the intellectual life, the life of the mind. Um, we we can often put this to the side, but there's a there's a deep hunger in the human being for understanding, for illumination. Um, uh, ideas and concepts and narratives and stories that help to feed our mind and our understanding and who we are they need to be nourished and uh, it takes time to actually dig deep into these things they've preoccupied philosophers theologians and great thinkers for centuries for millennia why should we be in a culture now which dictates to us that if you can't read it and consume it within five minutes it's not worth knowing um, we we need to honour the the life of the mind and the the feeding of the the, the soul which is connected to the mind. I think so. Uh, reading is becoming a lost art, <laughs> and uh, I know I've struggled with this just because running institutions you don't get a lot of time to read and drill down into things, and you have to learn to read again. We have to learn to attend to the word, and uh, we are not. We are not very good at that any longer because we're a highly visual culture now and lost our auditory sensibilities. And that was a key way in which we uh, kind of feed the, the intellectual quest. So just put a little little flag up for, for feeding the mind. Yeah, and I think there's a hunger out there. I, 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 keep, I always get annoyed when people say the younger generation, you know, they just haven't got an attention span. They can't, you know, rubbish. When, I, when we started having conversations about this podcast, I spoke to some people and, and I kept getting this message from all these people. Oh, people won't, young people won't engage. It has to be 10 minutes, no longer than 10 minutes. You know, and that's, that's utter nonsense because most of the consumers of really long conversations like this are younger people. And, mm. and I think there is a desire for that, a recognition that you get something worthwhile if you take the time for it and if you give the attention in a prolonged way. So I think this generation is, the, the younger generation is doing far better 
than probably some of us in the middle. <laughs> I always think of uh, the, one of the great, well, he was an Archbishop of Canterbury, but uh, from the continent, St Anselm. And he's got his wonderful, one, one of his wonderful introductions um, about uh, the, the, the quest for wisdom. And he said, oh God, he said, you know, you're, you, you're, you're light, but I've never seen the light. <laughs> he said, uh, you're, you're, uh, you're close to me, but I've never, <laughs> never felt it. He goes through all these uh, things that... He, his heart is clearly alive and his mind is hungry for the, the food, food of the spirit. But he starts with a really honest uh, acceptance that uh, he's just a babe in this spiritual quest with the life of the mind and the intellect. And I found that very humbling. And I always remember that mm. it's a very humbling thing to realize we're just scratching around. But, you know, if you don't even attend to the scratching... There's, there's so much wisdom to be found for life. And, uh, and some of the great, great uh, exemplars in the past that we, uh, we, we can learn from, they knew about the fact that we're just scratching around for wisdom, but it takes an honesty and a humility. And uh, I remember one, my early supervisor once said to me, um, the first thing you have to do uh, in the intellectual quest is to come to terms with your own ignorance and accept that and uh, so you don't have to know everything to start with um, you actually know very little but there's an awful lot of wisdom within us but we need we need the spaces and the attention to actually discover the wisdom it is it's funny you say that i have a friend who a little while ago joined a bit of an interfaith community and there are a lot of people in the church community who are surprised they're asking but they believe different things why why do you feel more home there than here? And they said, because I'm not interested in being with people who have the same answers. I'm interested in being with people who are asking the same questions. And I guess at the core, that is the spiritual community. That is, that is the quest is to just sit maybe with a cup of tea or around a fire or whatever with people who are asking the same questions. And, and to do the uh, Rilke thing, which is to live the question. So live into the question. Let the question be. Don't rush to an answer because there probably isn't one that you can access today and live into the question and in the process of living into it mm. will take you to a new place. And it may be an answer, but it may actually be another question. And so just keep on, journey journey deeper. It, it reminds me of the, the rabbi and the disciple, and the disciple, you've heard this one, he, the, the disciple says, Rabbi, why do you rabbis always answer a question with a question to which he says so what's wrong with a question <laughs> but but i was also reminded as you were talking peter about this uh, wonderful theologian that i read some years ago he said yeah there are questions that require answers and living into those is really important to be patient mm. and there are problems that require solutions and you've got to stick with them long and then finally there are mysteries that require probing and I loved this layered notion of the finding of wisdom. And the Christian tradition theologians have been wrestling with these three layers. But we live in a quick-fix culture now, yes. which wants questions answered, is yes. impatient with problems that don't give solutions, and simply buries its head when it comes to probing the deepest mysteries yeah. of life. And, and a, slow, a slow mindfulness requires you to you know, attend to the three levels, I think. And quick fix, fix religion too. You know, um, I've been we're in the Easter season at the moment. I've been quizzed so many times about whether you know was the was the resurrection a bodily one or not. And 
for me, it's just not a question. But mm. f- but for so many these days, it's that: is it true or not? Is it a fact or not? And it's that rather than here's a mystery that captivated these people to write these gospels and captivated the early community and can captivate me, because that's where I relate to the resurrection. I'm captivated by the resurrection, and it's as real as anything else. It's more real than anything else for me. And yet it's not reducible to detail. I don't know the answer to those literalist questions. And I don't want I don't don't feel like I need to. But it's quick fix religion. It's you know has to be this or that. And it's about facts and it's the scientific paradigm again sort of crushing in to destroy mystery or to tame mystery or to stop us probing the questions. And then you've got those strange conundrums in the Gospels in the post-resurrection appearances, Peter, where um, on the one hand he's down by the beach cooking fire and the disciples see him and he eats fish. Mm. He says, look, a ghost doesn't have... Mm. You know, mm. And then the next thing you know, he's appearing in the upper room and he just moves through the door. Yeah. <laughs> so and what kind disappears of, as he yeah. breaks bread. So yeah, what kind like, of body yeah, is yeah, this? Yeah, you know, And then there's a road to Emmaus, you know, yeah, yeah. and breaks bread and he disappears. Mm. So it's a spiritual body. It mm. doesn't... It, it is, there's dis- deep discontinuities with mm. our physicalism. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I guess then the, the question is always much more about what the resurrection how am i being captivated by that today now and and you know stories like uh, uh, that the the sitting on the beach eating fish is the story for me at the moment oh, they have right? times in life that, that different <laughs> stories and, Ooh, and and it is these stories sitting down with jesus on the beach with the fire passing around the fish you know and allowing it, it is a far more important question to go how am i living into that story now and what is how is that story transforming me because if we're going to take seriously the task of being ourself then that that is you know i'm you know some days you know i think i've I've got it a bit sorted and other days like i've got no idea i'm a complete mystery to myself you know this is a lifetime slow task and it takes by entering into stories like that 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 help me on the way a little I'll take heart from Stephen that the first hundred years of the hard (laughs) ones. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm really pleased you said that one about the come and have breakfast, uh, the The one I love is the Emmaus Road uh, because there are conversations taking place. They don't recognise him, but their hearts, something is stirred deep within them. They find there is meaning being revealed here. There is uh, clarity for their minds and their hearts, but yet they still don't get it, but there's something happening and there's a lot of that in our lives. Something is happening, we don't fully get it. And then there's a hospitality offer and the welcome. And that's the, that's the, the, uh, the knockout punch, you know. He breaks bread and disappears. But as St. Augustine said, you know, well, he was before them in bodily form, uh, invisible, and now he is held in their lives with faith. And uh, and then they go off back to back to uh, Jerusalem. So it's a it's a, it's n- it's not a one way journey. It's two way. And then they go out to the rest of the world with joy. So it, it takes time though. But I like the pilgrimage notion there, uh, to Emmaus back again and out. And pilgrims, they 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 probably should walk about three miles an hour. Yeah, I think not so. five. Five five is far too fast. <laughs> five is far too quick. <laughs> far too fast. <laughs> So as, as we are drawing this conversation to, to, towards its end, um, I suppose as, as something of a of a conclusion of this particular conversation, obviously I imagine it opens up many more. But but um, I wonder if there might be a way to to 
because I, I suppose the core human question is how to live well. What I've been given this life, what shall I do with it? How do I live well? And um, and the messaging that you get in certainly Western culture is you need to, as we've said throughout the podcast, achieve, see, do, be, love more. You need to do more. It's all about more and then you have lived well. So on your deathbed, it's almost this notion of someone will come around and check your passport, how many countries were stamped, um, how many, how much did you earn, how much did you achieve, how many people are going to come to your funeral. Great, that's a good life. What is the alternate that we're painting here? How to live well? What If you could put it in a few sentences, how to live well, what's the alternative messaging? How have you loved? And that takes time because you can't love, you can't love fast. Um, for, yeah, I agree. For me, it's my job is not to construct my life, but to allow it to be opened to the one who gives it form and shape and meaning. We live in a, we must construct reality. And we do it furtively and in inappropriate ways when all the time we are known and loved uh, by the good God. So there's a sense of how do we become aware and relax into the, the lovedness with which we are loved. Yeah, I think that's key. I think that the anxieties that so many people experience so strongly, if we are, my, my word would be awake, you know, how much was I awake? But was I mm. awake to the grace that was upon my mm. life that was mm. there for me all the time? Was I awake to the love that was in my life? And just was, was I awake and fully present, fully mm. here? Mm. I think people could take great, great heart from the stuff we hear in funeral eulogies. Uh, the great bulk of funeral eulogies talk about relationship and about what the person meant to others. The most devastating funeral uh, homily uh, eulogies for me are the ones where people talk about the achievements of the deceased as things. Um, but I have to say that even those eulogies, 99% of the time, uh, get saved, and it is an act of salvation, saved by the friend who gets up and says, mate, I loved you. We had a funeral several years ago and the first three or four speakers spoke about the successes, the business successes, and I do my funeral homily based on what I've heard and I was sitting there thinking, my hat, I have nothing to say today. And it was saved, literally saved, the whole thing was saved, the funeral was saved by the friend who got up and said, I loved you mate, and went down and touched the coffin. Mm. said mate you're everything to me this is a man to another man most amazing gift and I said to myself Peter now I have something to say because there, suddenly we had relationships and it was his three minute speech that had the people engaged and remembering the guy all the other stuff was me the the chasing after wind was vanity yeah wow well. well that is a as good a place as any to wrap this conversation up it's uh it's been a an outstandingly interesting fascinating conversation and i thank all three of you for um allowing me to be a part of it because i feel quite honored by that so thank you so much um peter sue and stephen 
Thank Thanks, Dom. Dom. Thank, Thank you again. Wonderful to be here. Yeah, it's great. We'll be back with another episode of the On The Way podcast shortly.